This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. The future is a funny thing. It's always around the corner, and yet it never quite arrives. And that's certainly true when speaking about the technology industry. As the personal computer revolution and the internet began spreading around the world in the 1980s and 90s, commentators and entrepreneurs made fortunes telling everyone that we were going to have a technological utopia in which everything was possible. It was parallel to what was happening in the political world, where the collapse of the Soviet Union inspired writers and politicians to declare that humanity had reached the end of history, a singular moment in time in which we could have the freedom of social democracy as smiling and benevolent billionaires provided everything we could ever want at unimaginably low prices. In the years since, however, all of these promises have failed to materialize. Wages have been stagnant, millions have abandoned the labor force, and political extremism is a threat like never before. Even as the supposedly benevolent billionaires have begun to increasingly ally themselves with religious fundamentalists in the hopes of preserving the massive wealth they've extracted from the world economy. One person who saw this coming is Richard Barbrook, our guest today on this episode. He's the co-author of a 1995 essay called The Californian Ideology, which was a rare contemporary dissent from what later became known as neoliberalism and also the emerging techno-libertarianism as well. Years later, he wrote a 2007 re-examination of these issues for a book that was called Imaginary Futures, From Thinking Machines to the Global Village. Welcome to Theory of Change, Richard. Welcome from snowy London to warm California. It's a bit dark outside, but my patio is covered with snow, you'd be glad to hear. Oh, yeah. Well, huh. Oh, it, that's uh, definitely not something that happens here in Southern California. But speaking of that, though, our conversation today, we're going to kind of structure it in parts here. So we're certainly going to talk about the Californian ideology that you co-wrote in 1995. But I do want to maybe go into the history of where all the tech world came from, because there's some misconceptions about how everything got started with the internet and things like that. So why don't you take us back before all of that Silicon Valley stuff got started, if you could, please. I wrote Imaginary Futures because I was always very skeptical about the origin myth of the internet, because they would say, but it was invented because in a nuclear war, they didn't want to have a centralized telecommunication system. So they were going to replace cheap, reliable switches with expensive, flaky mainframes. So there was obviously something weird going on there. That they, that this, what Paul Barron's original report for RAN was about. And then this whole thing was then taken up by the hippie generation in the 60s. And these were the people who actually created Silicon Valley, the internet and the digital revolution, which was proclaimed to be transforming the whole planet and transforming it into California. And so I went backwards to see what was going on. And, and as I was doing this, I came across these references around this particular years, 1964, 1965 which was actually when I, as a child, was actually in America. I went to a junior school in Boston, Massachusetts, and because my father was on a CIA 
scholarship to spend a year at MIT political science department where every professor and every graduate student was funded by the CIA at that point. And so I, I had that experience through my parents of actually being part of the extension of the empire into Europe. And we went to the New World's Fair on the way. We actually went by boat. We must be one of the last generations that actually travelled to America by boat. We got off at New York and there was this World's Fair. So we went to it and I was curious. The picture that's on the front, the photo, was taken by my father of us with the Unisphere behind us. So th this this is what I was curious about, about how that particular vision of the high-tech future inspired actually the technologies that we later create the internet. And to do with the Cold War race between America and the Soviet Union, the two empires, basically. Yeah. Well, and, and as you noted, the Americans were responding to some ideas that the Soviets yeah. yes. had. Yes, uh, they had, they had in, it was a sense that this, this Russian comrade pointed out to me, they were the last generation who really believed the Soviet Union was about to build communism. And so in the late 1950s, 1960s, there was a group of reformers who thought, well, the problem with Stalinism is it's basically the industrial stage of modernity. And if we bring in computers and networking, we can create what they call cybernetic communism. And Khrushchev at the 22nd Communist Party of the Soviet Union Congress actually said, we will be in cybernetic communism by the 1970s. And, so, and what was that supposed to mean, cybernetic communism? The people nowadays say, well, it's what Walmart does or any large corporation. It's using computer networks to plan the economy. So they would say, you have this central planning. The problem is, how do you get the information? How, how do you respond to changes in the economy? I mean, I have friends who grew up in the old Soviet bloc, and they would say, well, at one point, everybody wants to have white flared jeans because ABBA is the great the music they're all liking or hippiedom in general and then suddenly the, the the system responds to it but by the time it's responded and produced white flared jeans punk has arrived and they all want black skinny jeans instead and that's a sort of very trivial example but it's a general problem of the system so they thought you could solve that by having real-time planning by if somebody goes into a shop and buys black straight skinny jeans instead of white flared jeans it would immediately go back to the gene factory and tell them to switch from one to the other yeah. you can see that there's sort of lots of the just-in-time production systems today have, have sort of realized that the difficulty is they didn't have the telephone systems or the computers they had the idea though and i think the idea terrified certain people in america because you know, we had the bomber gap and the missile gap and then they thought there was going to be a cybernetics gap and that's what was really interesting. Why did they spend all this money on building the internet, this flaky communication system? And I think I realized that it was, it, it, a lot of people say, well, they had this technology and then they built fantasies like the California ideology on top of the technology. But what's interesting is the fantasies and sense had to come first to get the funding, both in the Soviet Union and America. And the key one was who owns the future? Because in the Cold War, the Soviet Union says, well, we're behind, we're not as democratic, we're not as rich as America, but we are the beta version of the communist future. And in America, it's very difficult because in a way, what comes after the consumer society? Because you can't have, for historical reasons, Americans couldn't say, well, we're going to build communism. 
right? Yeah. So they have to have another vision of the future. And that's where all these ideas like the information society, network society, technotronics, it's like all these ideas, they're sort of the American substitute for Soviet communism. Yeah. The well, next and, and, in history, yeah. Yeah, and I guess in a lot of ways that was kind of presaged with the idea of the the space race as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got that started and we kept seeing this this dynamic of of rivalry between capitalism and communism well, repeating in different spheres. Really, they never claimed to be communist. That's the point. I think that's the other well, point, the point, which was obscured by the whole collapse of the Soviet Union, is that the people adopted this American Cold War thing, that somehow the Soviet Union was communist when they never claimed to be communist. They said, we are really existing socially. Well, like in moment in China, they they socialism with Chinese character. Communism was the future that they're building. We forget this because we're living in the 2020s or even when we were right on our 1990s. People had already forgotten that trajectory of history. As you said in the opening, the, the Francis Fukuyama takes the Hegelian idea. It was actually a Hegelian Marxist idea coming from Alexander Kozhev of the concept of the end of history. Yeah. And he takes that and basically appropriates it for what at the time was neoconservatism in America. And we are the next stage of history. Everywhere else, we're, we're like the beta version of the future and everyone else will become like us. Well, and it was also the idea that nothing else can exist. Except for what we were talking about. Because America had won the Cold War uh, in some sense. Of course, in another sense, America had lost the Cold War and has been looking for it ever since. Yeah. Well, (laughs) so that's sort of the historical background. Well, I think the key thing is to think about why they spent so much money developing Mm -hmm. the Internet. It's not an obvious thing to develop compared to, I know, other military technologies or civilian technology. And also, why did they fixate on that particular technology as the one that was going to create a new society? I mean, if you think about, I don't know, jumbo jets, a shipping container, antibiotic, I mean, there's a whole series of other technology that probably had a more, in many ways, a more profound effect on modern societies. But they fetishize almost this particular, what used to be called the convergence of computing, telecommunications and media into one. And that mm-hmm. that is interesting, that particular part of the economy. I mean, again, as we know today, if we look at Wall Street, these corporations are very powerful and large. But why pick on their, that particular technology as the one that creates the next stage in history? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, that's, 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 an, that's an interesting, interesting idea. thing in itself. Because yeah. what's, what they're saying is that human history, I mean, this is what they McLuhan provided for. He was at the an American side. Well, well, for, for people who don't know who Marshall McLuhan was. Marshall McLuhan was a Canadian English professor who created a sort of a form of media technological determinism. I'm very simplifying his theory. I think it's not so much what he wrote as what it became, what the French called McLuhanism, I think. You have to hmm. distinguish between the two. But what he said, what he says is essentially most of human history we had the oral stage pre-literate and then you have printing and printing creates all those things which we associate with capitalism nationalism individualism and all the rest of it and then in the 1960s we are creating the internet essentially the tribal drug which he then calls the global village which is a phrase people still use today and that's going to create the next stage of human history he's talking about telstar satellites and color television but you know, because he's been told by the CIA, among other people, about cybernetic, the whole prediction of cybernetic communism, he then 
in a sense, domesticates it for the American audience and mm -hmm. becomes very famous in the process. You know, a whole range of people ever since have basically been doing the same prediction again and again and again. That's a good point there. The technological determinism, it was a political project initially. And it's kind of difficult, I think, in the United States for Americans. The term neoliberalism, it doesn't mean the same thing to your average American, of course, because we have this strange definition of liberal here. Back in the late 19th century, no, you didn't make the evolution. Most of other capitalist countries, the liberals collapsed into the conservatives. And then mm -hmm. you have the emergence of a socialist, social democratic communist party, some of which are indistinguishable from liberal parties anyway, but the rhetoric changes, basically. Yeah. yeah. And so just to go back to right before your paper, Californian Ideology, which came out in 1995. So at that time in the 80s and the 90s, there was an emergence of these sort of right-wing voices like Newt Gingrich like George Gilder, who were both very fundamentalist Christian far-right individuals, but they had read their McLuhan and they had absorbed it. And they were some of the, the earliest backers of this type in, of thinking. In Europe, it was slightly different because we sort of lost our religion somewhere along the way. Because they, oh, certainly in UK, especially. Yeah, yeah. They, they would say God died on the first day of the Battle of the Somme in 1916. But so here it was, there were people around Thatcher's government from 1979 to 1990 who definitely connected together new technologies, the sunrise industries, as they used to call them, and neoliberal economics, which obviously she was one of the champions of. So it was, so we had a slightly different version of it in Europe, mm -hmm. and particularly in the 1980s when Francois Mitterrand, who was elected in the early 80s as president of France, as a socialist, and when his attempts to reflate the economy through the you know, nationalisation plan failed, they then shifted to a sort of soft form of neoliberalism and a fascination with Silicon Valley. So that, again, it didn't import, as you say, all that Newt Gingrich sort of implicit racism, the love of the Confederacy and all these other bizarre things that it was associated with in America. Yeah. And then, of course, there were the Ayn Rand. Who's never been popular uh, in Europe. I mean, she's, you know, she's oh, yeah. a terrible novelist and a horrible human being. So, yeah, she's never really had a constituency here at all. The person who was the big influence here in the 1980s was Friedrich von Hayek, because Margaret Thatcher said The Road to Serfdom was her favourite book, and The Constitution mm -hmm. of Liberty probably was her second favourite book. And that says if you have a welfare state, the next stage is the Gulag Archipelago, basically. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. it's, I mean, I remember reading it after she got out. I just thought, this is batshit crazy, this book. But it's incredibly influential. So... Uh, we're now at the point then where the American government has invested all this money in computer networking and physically laying down wires. And actually, they started on what later became Wi-Fi, actually, in the 1960s. And the idea of forcing TNT to give away the code of Unix, not being allowed to sell it. So there were all these host of things that were completely anti-capitalistic. Whereas um, in the Soviet Union, simultaneously, they got very frightened by this vision of cybernetic communism. I have a friend who grew up in, in the Soviet Union, and he said all the computer networks were deliberately made so they were incompatible. They couldn't be linked together because they didn't want people linked. The bureaucracy didn't want feedback from the workers and peasants about what shitty job they were doing. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. So anyway, but so the U.S. government had invested all this money and behaved decidedly uncapitalistic and created the Internet and or ARPA net first and then and later what became yeah. the Internet. And so that takes us to 1995 when you were working on the Californian ideology with your colleague. So tell us, first of all, what does the Californian ideology mean? Well, I think you have to go back to that period in England. So we had a long period of conservative government. The internet arrives, a friend of mine set up the world's first internet cafe in Soho in London. And in this cafe, you'd meet people who would be against privatising healthcare or railways or things like that. But as soon as it got on to talking about computers or the internet, they would suddenly start spouting neoliberal ideology. And this was because they were all reading this magazine called Wired. And so me and Andy Cameron were setting up an MA in hypermedia studies for the University of Westminster. And we sort of wrote the California ideology partly as a, a manifesto to attract students and say, well, we think differently about this than the sort of stuff they're talking about in Wired. And it was, as I said, partly we wrote it for ourselves and for this mailing list, this sort of European mailing list called NetTime. And it just took off. We were really surprised. I mean, it was published by a mute magazine in London, and then we distributed it on this net time mailing list. And then suddenly it went off like a rocket. And it was like viral. It went viral, I guess we'd now say. And then what I always remember reading an article somewhere, they just talked about the California ideology and they didn't link to our article. And initially I thought, oh, that's bad. Why aren't they credited? And then I thought, actually, no, that shows you're a success. When you, when you invented a phrase, and it's passed into everyday language and people don't need to be told where it comes from. That's mm -hmm. success, basically. Yeah, and it's still yeah. going. I mean, that's the other thing is that here we are talking about it decades later. And so it, it obviously hit a nerve. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I think The Well had this, uh, Bruce Sterling hosted this this group in there called Looney Lefties Sniping at Wired or something. And it was all that Louis Rossetto was deeply annoyed with it and all the rest of it. That was good. I have to say, who 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 is Louis Rossetto was this rather dodgy character who was the editor of Wired. He'd actually lived in Amsterdam. He had a real animus, not so much against the Soviet Union, a bit like a bit like Hayek and Mises. It's actually social democracy. That's what they really didn't like. And he had the same thing. What he really didn't like was social democracy, even in a yeah. sort of mild West European type. And yeah. it obviously really really got to him. Yeah. Well, okay, so, but the title, I guess, yeah, tell us about the title. Why did, why did you guys use that? Well, there's a very famous book by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels called The German Ideology. It has a sort of a, a really simplified and very readable you know, the materialist conception of history. They sort of update this theory, which Adam Smith, Adam Ferguson, and the great developers of, but they sort of update that for mid-19th century socialists. And what they're arguing in the German ideology it's not that all Germans have this ideology, but this particular form of, sort of what they call left Hegelianism. It's just a sort of form of radical republicanism, but very philosophically based. could only have happened in Germany at this particular time. And it wouldn't have happened in France or in Britain or America or anywhere else. And we thought this was a good analogy because this sort of mixture of new left and new right, the sort of hippie capitalist, is a very Californian uh, you wouldn't have got it in Boston, for instance, or New York or other places where technology was being developed at the time. And so we mm -hmm. thought that was a really good analogy to make. I don't think whether, whether many people got 
where we nick the title from, I don't know. But of course, and also it sounds quite poetical, doesn't it? And it's interesting because I've discovered it's now on the reading list for undergraduates. Because if it's long ago, enough ago, the people who criticise California become part of the Californian theoretical <laughs> universe, which is, I suppose is quite flattering in a way. Uh, yeah, well, and, and I guess one of the things that is striking to me about the essay at the time was that in the United States in particular, but I think you saw it later in with Tony Blair and his hmm. third way, quote unquote, is that a lot of the people who embrace what you guys called the Californian ideology, which in many ways is just like a shorthand, one could argue, for a form of libertarianism, right? Well, um, neoliberalism, as we would call neo, it. Yeah, neoliberalism. For people who have an understanding of political ideologies mm. and mm. history, these are these are traditions which are, are on, firmly on the ideological yeah. right side. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but for people at that time in the 90s, and ever since, like Elon Musk or like a number of these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, they actually thought that they were on the left, which you were saying that it was kind of a, they were taking cultural affects of new left personal liberation, but completely ignoring any of the economic and social aspects. Well, what they ignore is the class politics. Since the 1848 revolutions, you're only on the left if you actually talk about class politics. I mean, obviously, fighting against racism, sexism, heterosexism is important, but that's to unite the workers against the capitalist class. They're not in themselves the issue. So this sort of radical liberalism about individual identity. How can yeah. you have individual freedom without collective freedom? And that's like a mid-19th century concept, which is abandoned, mm -hmm. I think, by, by late 20th century in many ways. Yeah. And I think that we're still living in the aftermath of that, actually. It's very difficult to get people... To even it's interesting in America, if you look at people like the Democratic Socialists of America, who I'd be in many ways very sympathetic with, it's interesting how much identity politics obsesses them to the detriment of class politics. So they mm -hmm. don't, again, they don't see it as creating class unity. They see that it is in itself the main struggle. And okay, you can say that's part of the history of America. You had slavery for hundreds of years and then institutionalized discrimination. You had immigrant society with lots of different nationalities, I mean, creating these communal politics and sexism and all the rest of it. But there's something very distinctive about that. And again, it's interesting how people like Daniel Bell, who is coming with the post-industrial society, he's one of the forerunners of the California ideology. He also wrote The End of Ideology, where he says class politics is over and what we're going to have is competing interest groups. That is the future. And that's, he's the CIA-promoted theorist. And so it's interesting that sort of liberalism, in that sense of the word, social liberalism, connects with neoliberalism together. Democrats are doing exactly the same. I don't think this, in that sense, if you look at it from the outside, there's one thing the mm -hmm. California ideology tries, is they're, they're two bits of the war party. Now, they're all funded by the military-industrial complex. They all love wars. They go around invading other people's countries. And then internally, I mean, Joe Biden has just broken your railroad union's strike. And he's supposed to be on the left. Yeah, so, okay, so, and, and basically the, the point of the essay was to say that, look, this, it's presenting itself as something new and completely different, but it's actually really not that different. It's just using technological trappings, if you will, right? But it's promoting this, you have to understand, that was like the apogee of, of, of the American Empire's unipolar moment, wasn't it? Obvious opposition, which was Stalinism in Russia. 
in its various forms and interpretations had failed. Yeah, it collapsed into. I mean, that was the 1990s. It was a period of absolute disaster in Russia. And then the other obvious contender, which is China, was then keeping its head down and taking the capitalist road. So that seemed to be going. I mean, the prediction was that China would evolve into America. Yeah. I mean, even if you read you know, Thomas Friedman, The World is Flat, and that's only, what, 10, 15 years ago? It's not that long ago. He's convinced that India, for instance, is a contender against China. Mm-hmm. And this sort of thing. And he's convinced that, that India's great advantages, they speak English, and they're more like America. And all those are the tropes that the Chinese can't innovate. They're just imitators, etc., mm-hmm. etc. And so it's, it's interesting that that even now, if, I mean, if you look at that book now, for instance, because that's a good example of the sort of New York Times version, of the Californian ideology is how dated it seems, that confidence that the whole world will become America. And I think that's partly, you can see why, because if you go to America, there's lots of people who come from different cultures and become American. And so the assumption is the whole world wants to do that. Yeah, no. yeah. The idea well, that and, people actually have their own history, their own cultures, and their own trajectory yeah. to modernity. If you talk to Chinese comrades, they always think this is hilarious, the idea that they're going to somehow abandon the whole history of the Long March and the 1949 revolution and Mao, all the experience of Mao and everything that's happened since. I talk to Chinese students who are all said that we are a democracy, actually. They looked round at all the Westerners in this seminar group and said, China is a democracy. Our living standards go up every year. And then the implicit being to with all the other people, and yours don't. Things get better mm. every year in China. The government responds to what we want. It, it's a bit difficult to counter that. So they have a different trajectory of history. And that's something now, I know Chinese people can feel very self-confident about saying in public in a way they wouldn't have done in the 1990s. Yeah. Well, and we should get into that a little bit later. But so what was the, the reaction to the essay after it came out? There's outrage among the, the Wired crew. Louis Rosetto was, I gather, absolutely furious with it. I was told that Howard Reingold, when I was at this, I was at this event with Howard Reingold, who's this very sweet old hippie who wrote The Virtual Community and Smart Mobs, I think it's called. Very nice guy. But he, he, I was told beforehand he was slightly worried about meeting me because he thought I was some sort of hardline communist who beat him up or something, which I thought was quite funny. We got something right when we met. And then, of course, the other reaction, though, in Europe was to see it as an anti-American piece, which we also found in a way more disturbing, that it was seen as a sort of anti-American manifesto. Because... It's not, I've lived in America, one of the great loves of my life is America. So I'm not anti-America. It's the system I don't like. I don't like the government. And that's the reason I wouldn't live there. But I'm not anti-American. And there is this sort of, unfortunately, because it's an empire and it's done horrible things to people all over the world, you get this sort of knee-jerk anti-Americanism. So it's not, that, that, that I thought we thought in some ways is a rather disturbing side of, of the reaction. Because in a way, a lot of stuff about the new left is very positive, as you mm-hmm. said. We all grew up on that sort of hippie culture, even if I became a punk and said never trust a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> but we're yeah. all influenced by music and the culture, the drugs, all the rest of it. We all absorbed that as part. And we all read the electric Kool-Aid acid test and fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And that became part of our view of the world. That was the weird thing about the empire in lots of parts of it. I don't think now really so much. But in the past, the major opposition to the empire actually came from inside America. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not an anti-American piece, and it's certainly not an anti-Californian piece. Yeah, well, it's it's. I mean, yeah, definitely mostly analytic. Let's say. Yeah, um, it was a magazine that predated Wired called Process Word, and that was really good. I mean, that was a sort of very much people around in and around Silicon Valley who were using like they'd read Marx for a start, which helps. And they, they were really engaging with a lot of these sort of transformations, the way technology was affecting how people worked and how people lived. And that's sort of what was lost, I think, in that period. It's that triumphalism, wasn't it, of the 1990s. I think people forget that now because the empire is in severe crisis, how self-confident it was. This is before the debacles in the Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and now in Ukraine. So that was a different age where it did appear that the whole world would become America in a way. You read like the long boom, which Wired produced. They actually started with a chapter called The American Ideology, which I thought was a neat, neat homage to us. And yeah, that's what they say. The whole world will become like us. Yeah. And I don't think anybody could say that now. Yeah. yeah. Well, now, one one thing that was emerging during that time, it was very, very nascent, was what later came to be called the open source software yeah. movement or free software. If I remember right, I think it was 1989 when uh, Richard Stallman founded yeah. the GNU project. You guys didn't mention that. Were you aware of that at that time? Well, I later wrote a piece called Cyber Communism which like, was sort of partly, partly came out of the writing of Imaginary Futures. I was invited to this 50th anniversary of Marshall McLuhan first talking at Fordham University in New York. This is a Catholic university. And so I got up and made this. It was just before the dot-com bust. So it must have been like 97, 98. And I said, joking, I said the US military invented the only working model of communism in human history. It's called the internet. And then I wrote an article basically taking that paper and riffing on it about the way that, you know, it's interesting, okay, partly because it's obviously coming out of the Cold War, the way you get a lot of the corporate Silicon Valley, as you said, it comes out of the state, essentially state planning. Even I think Bob Reich says that, that America has central planning like everyone else, except they call it the defense budget, which I think is a nice quip since he was... Clinton's Minister of Labour, wasn't he? And then, of course, the other side of it is this sort of other type of communal production, this sort of thing. And it was partly, slightly, obviously, from the title, slightly satirical, but it was about how the Americans are superseding capitalism in cyberspace. And I think that's so that was something we didn't put in there because it was a short article. But yeah, we're certainly aware of it. And I had friends involved in that sort of interesting interface where they were like working on open source software and then using that software for their commercial jobs and i thought that this idea that it's all a perfect market which is lots of the california ideology was about and then this other thing which you, you said richard so much used to the other extreme which is it can only exist as a completely decommodified experience it says he being living in mit which is funded by the department of defense it's that bit in the middle which i thought was interesting and i don't, I don't know how much attention you paid to the economics of of open source but i mean even there we've had this this kind of divergent system because on the one hand you've had it's become extremely capitalized 
yeah. with very large companies like IBM and other companies, yeah. Microsoft, making contributions to the Linux kernel and funding developers there directly. So Linus Torvalds, the creator of Linux, created a foundation and it has all this gigantic mm. corporate sponsorships. But then at the same time, there's been controversies within that world about licensing because, so in the case of Torvalds, the GNU project came out with the versions of their license and he doesn't like their third license. And so there's been some controversy in that. Is that something you followed at all? I don't want to get into it if you haven't. Oh, all those sort of Eric Raymond and all those people. Yeah, like Raymond, what? The Hebrew and the Bazaar. But they were funny in a way, because it's strange how the way that image of the cathedral was then taken up by all these neo-reactionary types. And the, the opposite mold, The moldings and all those sorts of people, yeah. But, you know, it's obviously not a bazaar. It's not lots of small entrepreneurs in a market. And anyway, mm -hmm. his idea of what a bazaar is is very strange because obviously the prices in a bazaar are more or less fixed. There's always a floor under which nobody will go for obvious reasons because they're all connected with each other by family and friendships. He actually came to talk here, which I wasn't there, so it's nothing to do with me and the cyber-communism article, but he asked him this. They said, oh, isn't this all basically communist and he just stormed off the stage and refused to come back he said oh yeah, yeah. europeans are all fucking left. <laughs> because again people i wasn't there but the people a lot of the people there because they're europeans and involved in this they're sort of anarchistic types or, or maybe some of them have been in trotskyist groups so they're going to have this sort of left-wing sensibility and not see words like that as a bad thing Whereas obviously mm -hmm. if you come from America and you're a sort of right-wing gun nut, you're going to have this sort of atavistic reaction against this. Yeah, it was, and that was actually a common criticism in the 90s. Of, yeah, it was of, open, of, source. Of open source. Yeah, and obviously, I, guess, I guess in America, and, in yeah. Europe, if you say, well, we're doing a communist software project, people say, oh, good, that sounds excellent. You're, mm -hmm. part, of our, you're part of the left. Or if you're yeah. in certain countries in Europe, you probably get a grant for saying that. Whereas, whereas obviously in America, you're not going to get that, are you? Well, you wouldn't. And uh, but I, I guess perhaps that's a, another conversation. But so, so take us then to your book, Imaginary Futures, which you wrote several well, it was, decades. It was a later. sort of development. It came out of this. What is a writer book on Martian McLuhan? I think that's the really basic idea behind it. It was two things. I wanted to go do the prehistory, the prehistory of of the internet as i explained my father was on this mit working a sabbatical at mit basically from his job in england funded by the cia and his great hero was walt roster who was national security advisor for lyndon bain johnson and helped organize a military coup in in brazil overthrew democracy and was obviously notoriously involved in the invasion of vietnam and i remember he came to dinner after he murdered a few hundred thousand people and so it was that media he knew people like daniel bell they're, they're in the democratic i mean again very similar to now they were in the democratic party and in some ways in internal politics they seem left of center so i always remember roster going on about how he'd been forced into retirement in austin but he was involved in doing improving education, particularly for African-Americans and Hispanics. And, you know, and he's in favour of healthcare and all the rest of it. But this is a guy who was like a vicious fascist as soon as he went abroad. And you can see that with the Biden administration. It's the same thing. Really. Internally, they you could say a lot of stuff. Some things you could argue they're doing quite, doing quite progressive things. But externally, they're just the normal, horrible, imperialist Americans. But at the same time, though, I mean, in the 80s, 
I mean, there was, especially in France, there was this a, a different idea for the network yeah, the chat, society. The yeah, um, exactly. yeah, tell tell the our our viewers about that for those who don't. I mean, I was a French student in the '90s, so they told us all about it. They were yeah. So the first mass public packet switching network wasn't the internet. Uh, it was actually it was actually this system called Minitel. So in in the 1970s, there was this report done called the Computerization of Society. There was this guy called Simon Nora, who was like a big bureaucrat, basically. And this up-and-coming socialist politician called Alan Mank. eventually becomes quite well-known. And they write this report and they say, well, what France has to do is not get overwhelmed by American technology. And so what we need is a grand projet to stop this. And so what they suggested was what became Minitel. And Minitel was essentially, it was like a dumb term. I mean, it's what we now call cloud computing, I guess. So France Telecom would have these big servers and you would, instead of having a telephone director, you would get a free terminal. And then on this terminal, which basically used premium phone lines, you could access various services on it. So a lot of them were information services. Say if you're a farmer, you can find out about the price of potatoes or things like that. In 1985, we booked a train ticket online. This seemed like the future. I thought, God, this is amazing. It shows you how far America is behind. We bought a high-speed train ticket down to the South coast so that was quite amazing but then the big thing that really took off and made money for it was what were called messageries which were essentially chat lines where you could go on and not a lot of things that became famous in the internet about people changing their sex or age or whatever became really famous through that so a lot of them were you know, being french about sex of course <laughs> or human so they, and if you went to paris in the 1980s it was all full of these sort of little stickers everywhere advertising erotic massagery services but obviously the people on the left use them for political organizing people just use them for social life i remember somebody who worked for france telecom she did this really interesting report on it there she tells this very sweet story about this teenage boy makes friends with this middle-aged well, grandmother woman, and then normally they would never meet and become friends, but they had some common interest. And through this connection, through online connection, they then became friends in real life. So this guy who probably would only know, apart from his parents' friend, not know anybody of that generation, suddenly has a very good friend from that generation. And she suddenly knows a teenage boy who she doesn't normally have friends with. And that she said that's really interesting because it broke down that social barrier. And they were talking about that in the 1980s, not in the 1990s. So lots of the stuff that Howard Rheingold would later talk, you know, in the virtual community that was already happening in France in the 1980s. The problem was, there were two problems with it. First, it was only in France. And it didn't have that. The Californian ideology was this idea that the internet was the whole world basically. So you didn't have that wonderful ability to link globally. Suddenly I have friends who moved abroad and thanks to the internet, I'm still friends with them. Or friends who moved abroad and I lost contact with suddenly came back into my life because we are connected through this technology. And the other thing is it was on premium phone lines. So it made sense to run these services. I mean, I knew someone who ran a radio station. They basically funded it through the massagery services because France Telecom would take 50% and you'd get 50%. I assume some of the sex lines, probably they did make lots of money, but you could certainly make enough. And of course, when the internet came along, it offered these services for free, all through the advertising. And so it really, so it was both the technology had problems because it was only French and it was also based on this dumb terminal, big mainframe, and the PC yeah. came along. And that's the other interesting thing is that there was that moment when the intelligence went from the center into the periphery. I mean, now it's starting to go back again. 
Suddenly with the internet, you could do see you, see me and talk to people on videos rather flakily and it would break up. But this was amazing. There's nothing you couldn't do on or show pictures or have color, for instance. So it got technologically superseded as well. I think also ideologically it lost out because this idea of a state-led project, which in 1981, particularly when Francois Mitterrand was elected as the socialist president, seemed absolutely the future. By the early 1990s, that just seemed like the past because the French Socialist Party had embraced neoliberalism by then. The funny thing, though, about Minitel is that people continue to use it right up until the very end. By the time they ended it, there were almost a million terminals still in use in 2012. Because it was very, it was, it had lots of, it was really easy to use. And I think also, it's again, it's like any of these technologies. Once people have learned to use them, they're reluctant to learn a new thing, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, why, why Why would you do something else when you're used to getting certain types of information or total services. You don't want to buy a computer and go through all the hassle with computers that don't work or connections and all the rest. And you couldn't get a virus. You couldn't get a virus. It's just really simple. It's like how how people don't have smartphones. Yeah, Yeah, that would seem... Some people I know have actually gone back to to dumb phones, as they call them, because... They don't, they don't want all the distraction of social media or whatever. They just want to make phone calls and send texts. That's all they want. And that's, I think, the same with Minitel. There was a certain element in French society. We're fine. Why do we need Why do we need to set up a PC? Particularly when it was a PC and there's all that hassle with PCs. And particularly if they're running Windows, where it's still a bit flaky. It's not pug and play. And you have to sit there and work out, why doesn't Microsoft have all the drivers automatically installed? All that sort of nonsense. Well, so, but I guess the other thing that's interesting also, and obviously Minitel hadn't shut down at that point that you wrote uh, Californian Ideology, but from an information economy, news, media, journalistic economy, Minitel was also more sustainable than what later developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it actually paid people for making content and hosting services. So it wasn't reliant on advertising and free labor. I think that's a really interesting part of it. So you have the socialist state of doing this project, but actually in a way, it actually created markets in a way that when we talk about open source, that problem, mm-hmm. the problem of how do you make money online? I mean, the sort of push towards social media has obviously been a part of that because it becomes dependent on advertising revenue. And then that advertising revenue is captured by the platforms, not by the content producers. Yeah, um, and captured by the advertising operator themselves. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so, and, there's all, and then there's all the surveillance problems with it involved. With it as, well. as soon as Artie's mother got pregnant, I immediately got bombarded with nappy adverts. So I thought that's great. I have hardly, I don't think I'd announced it to anybody, certainly not publicly publicly online, but he'd have picked up that I was about to become a father. So you, you're really aware then of the level of surveillance. Oh, oh. What's interesting about that, it was, it, I think also, is that, that the French bought in, because of, we, we talked about the California, they bought into this idea that there was one global information society, which would be run by California. And they sort of resisted. You now get this talk in the European Union of digital sovereignty, and you think, well, unless you, I, I mean, I've been at conferences where I just say to them, well, a, what, what have you been doing since the 1990s? You've allowed eBay, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Google, all these companies to take over this space. And they're run from California or Oregon or wherever. And they're, they're not European. And it's, put it bluntly, America is a hostile power in many ways to Europe. 
but you're just so enamoured by the empire, you can't see it. And it's interesting because people criticise the Chinese for creating this great firewall of China, as it's called. And obviously it does have censorship things behind it. But you, you think actually that it was probably the CPC, Communist Party of China's greatest decision, actually, because it's economically protected its computing and internet industries, which has allowed them to develop. So they have their own equivalents of e-commerce sites, which are actually now more successful. In and are now on the international. Yeah, and, and they have their own, exactly. So they have all their own equivalents of these platforms, but they're actually Chinese. And of course, now they're exporting them with things like they now got a software industry. And so they can create TikTok. So the growing social platform in outside China is actually a Chinese piece of software. And then Zoom is the other obvious example, which though it's they've got a nice shell company operating it in California, it's actually all the software is written in China. So that's the other interesting. So I, I, I mean, I used to a long time ago, I would say, oh, this is a good example of the Leninist state making sure it's protecting its information monopoly. But actually, I've just completely gone through under 80 degrees. I just think that was the best thing they ever did is build the great firewall of China, just from an economic point of view. And that's what Europe didn't do. So the Minitel logic would be you generalize Minitel across the whole of the European Union and build a big firewall, stopping American corporations operating in that space, because otherwise you don't have sovereignty. Or pipe it in some external method or something like that. Well, they, I mean, that, they, but, you know, the Chinese have pushed out Google and Amazon. creation of political and economic. They don't exist, yeah. or you can only access. I mean, I've talked to people who've lived there, and they said, well, what's interesting, it's easy to jump over the firewall with a VPN, but it's, most people just don't bother, because why would you bother to go? And then occasionally I'll just fuck up the VPNs just to make sure they don't come too popular. But they have like, everybody who wants to get over the firewall can. They really want to but they just make it a hassle and then if you've got your mobile phone you're probably not going to install a vpn because all the services you really want having a taxi or buying all the food online or whatever are all going to be in these chinese services or your social media that's where all your friends are, are on chinese sites not on twitter well and that's and that's a network effect so yeah I, yeah and they made that happen in a way that the european failed to do it and i think partly it's because of that end of empire Californian ideology moment where Europe lost confidence in itself. You can see this at the moment where Europe is sacrificing its economic, its own economic self-interest over mm. this horrible conflict in Europe. And it's not making any effort to stop it because it won't do anything without the permission of the Biden regime. Something that fundamental where you could mm -hmm. de-industrialize the German economy, put millions of people on the dole. They can't do it because they're so captured, this generation by the post-1991 end of history Californian ideology. They can't imagine a world without America. Now, part of that might be also that they de-invested in their own military industrial complexes as well. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, so, I mean, that's, that's the, the paradox, though, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, no, no. I mean, I know what. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other. I mean, obviously, yes, exactly. It's much cheaper to let the Americans defend you. But then mm -hmm. they drag you. They can drag you into a a conflict which you which is being lost. So that, that's that's the real danger they blundered into this conflict and the europeans can't control something happening on their own border because they have no sovereignty and it's a really obvious crisis at the moment but it's a generalized thing across europe about how it's part of the west whatever that means uh, and then then we've got this if there's a multipolar world emerging which there obviously is 
suddenly the international community actually 85 percent of humanity is not part of the international community or the rules-based international order or whatever phrase there is and they're actually mm-hmm. looking their major trading partner is china for instance so that becomes a really interesting moment about i was actually told mm-hmm. by somebody who's allegedly left of center that the problem with this is that china is an alien civilization and i just looked at them with amazement i mean this is an extraordinary mm-hmm. thing to say and they said it without thinking they said they sort of like you know why is china an alien civilization i mean because it doesn't have that sort of europe and then it's offshoot america history but most of the world necessarily share that but you know the fact that the chinese have their own 2,000 years of history and their own legends and all the rest of it. I mean, it doesn't make them alien. It means you don't know about it. (laughs) Or appreciate it, or you don't appreciate it, or you've been Mm -hmm. so brainwashed to think that everything since 1945 has been up in China has been a horror show, this sort of thing. I just find that very, very strange. And this a fifth of humanity is aliens. Mm -hmm. Well, but okay, but let's stay on that point a little bit more, though, because we've talked before the show that if somebody were to write an essay about where the future is being located at or being built now, you were saying that it would be in Shenzhen. I mean, as I said, it would probably be called the Shenzhen ideology, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, okay. So for those who don't know it, like, tell us about Shenzhen. What is that? Okay. So Shenzhen is this place next to Hong Kong. It was a fishing village, but it's now surpassed Hong Kong. It's an economic zone. It's on this Pearl River Delta where there's a whole series of cities with Hong Kong and Macau at the front, the ex-colonies. And it's really where all the high-tech industry is, where Huawei and all the other Tencent, that's where they're all based, basically. I mean, obviously, there's other places in China, Beijing, Shanghai, and so on. They're also innovating. But it's the key place where it's got this got this entrepreneurial culture. And they say they innovate at Shenzhen time. So they're like, like you would have said in the 1990s, if you want to be at the cutting edge of technology, you go to silicon valley now people would say go to shenzhen you can you can go to these like big markets and buy anything any piece of technology you can get the prototype into production and it's also the other reason is it's that weird mixture of this very cutthroat capitalist competition and the sort of chinese maoist vision of the future so the reason why i said this i saw this program where they went to they went to some startup in Shenzhen and they had the characters of a line from Mao Zedong's On Protracted War on the wall. And I assume because his calligraphy is very famous that it's in his handwriting as well. And so it's a similar thing that when I remember being taken to the Facebook offices in Stanford and it had a clenched fist salute behind the receptionist desk. And that's the same thing. But their mm-hmm. history is not Wild West, the American War of Independence, liberalism. Their history is different. The way they modernized was through the Communist Party of China winning the revolution in 1949 and going through all the stages that they needed to get to get to where they are now. And so I thought it was an interesting way. It's that combination of left and right, which you mm-hmm. know, Deng Xiaoping made possible to take off. But of course, the Chinese people say, well, actually, it was also like that in the 1950s to a certain extent. So there's there's that combination of both capitalist modernization and socialist modernization together as one moment it has that same feel as the Californian ideology. That's what yeah. I was 
Well, and the I guess one of the other kind of interesting notes, the parallels, though, is that Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, also loves China and talks about how they are yeah, the model for get, the future. Yeah, but he doesn't get the, he doesn't get the whole Mao thing. I mean, that's the interesting. He doesn't really understand that whole that part of it. He sees as somehow illegitimate. They're only be happy when China does what the Soviet Union did in ninety one. He wants to pull down all the statues of Mao and bury him and all the rest of it. Whereas actually, people who are obviously not being leftists are obviously very critical of the government, but. They, they don't see that as an illegitimate part of their history. They see that as an essential part of their history. I mean, this one friend of mine, he was, was teaching in Hong Kong, and I remember when his daughter was doing history, China, and he said, oh, we're on the long march this week. It's really exciting. And it's mm. like, you know, I don't know, it's a bit like Valley Forges for Americans. The foundation myth of the modern state. And so this idea that, you know, because with the West, we're taught that everything basically before Deng Xiaoping is evil. It just doesn't make sense to Chinese people. They just think this is bonkers. The average age mm-hmm. of Chinese people in 1949 was 35. The average lifespan was 35 years. And then when Mao died, it was 64 years. So whatever else happened, obviously the things that happened, there were lots of horrible things that happened during his reign. But to the mass of the population, it was a huge, huge improvement compared to the previous 2,000 years. So that's mm-hmm. the difficulty that, 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 again, the way that his quotations and poetry and writings are mm-hmm. essential part of modern Chinese culture. Right. So if you're going to set up your startup, you're going to think that you are like the Communist Party of China in the 1930s. The Communist Party of China was the most successful startup in Chinese history, wasn't it? They started off with like 10 or 11 members and ended up ruling the whole country. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of interesting also, though, that this Chinese ideology or Shenzhen ideology, there's a lot of similarities, I think, in some ways of beyond just blending left and right, but also it's, you could argue that it might be an iteration of the California ideology. It's just saying, well, we're going to step, step past that point here. Well, but you have to understand that the materialist conception of history is that sees history in stages. And people obviously criticize it and say, no, no, we can do something else or we could leap forward into a new utopia. But it's so ingrained in modernity. So Adam Smith says we start off with hunting and then we go to herding and then agriculture and then commerce. And then what leftists did in the 19th century is add communism as the next stage. That's all they did. They said, well, actually, we don't. The end of history isn't commerce, liberalism. There's another stage afterwards. And that way, that's what we're all bound in that view of history. I mean, you can go through and criticise and say, oh, some people went from herding back to hunting or or agriculture back to hunting. So there's ebbs and flows. But you can say that this concept of progress does argue in favour of that that happening. In most recent history, most of the people a few hundred years ago lived off subsistence agriculture with all the problems of disease and famine. And now I think half the world, or just over half the world now, is living in cities. And China, that's very obvious, isn't it? I mean, they lived in immense positivity of, of again, subsistence agriculture. And now, whatever it is, 60% of the population now live in cities, and their living standards have shot up. So that that's that seems 
as progress and therefore they start to believe that they are going forward and they do see the world as still in stages they were in feudalism and now they're going along the capitalist road and eventually they will get to the communist mm -hmm. future what that means i'm never sure what they mean by that but that's officially what they think they're doing yeah they're following yeah. the capitalist road to communism so other people argue they've been doing that since 1949 but that so that gives that in that sense you can see the parallel because the, the california ideology and before that the people who are writing the information society or whatever were also responding to the stalinist version of that so in a way that that's a common view of history I mean, I've got, I said, I've got this Chinese comedy. He said, we used to go to America to see the future, and now we go there to see the past. Mm -hmm. Feels self-confident with high-speed rails and ways and all the rest of it, that they are now the future. 5G, you can't get in decent 5G reception, or you can't buy everything with a card or with your phone. I don't know. I don't know. You know, there's that vision that somehow they're, they're catching up and surpassing America. And in social organisation, four million didn't die of COVID. Let's we should be the equivalent of the COVID deaths in America. Yeah, those sorts of visions make them feel confident that they, whether rightly or wrongly, that that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I guess the other thing also that's different from the sort of neoliberal ideology mm -hmm. is that the Chinese also did not willfully throw away manufacturing. That they're the using. Contrary. The oh, yeah, like they're they're built that that's the bedrock of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah it's the workshop uh, of the world. Yeah, yeah and in that sense, the the neoliberal techno libertarianism, it kind of it was a rejection of the labor theory of value of actual products and and and, and, of, and, and financialization in favor yeah, of financialization. And, and the, a rejection of the the working class. I mean, they in a way what they wanted they were afraid of the industrial working class in the West, weren't they? They thought, well, if you send it out to China and India and Mexico, they can deal with all that. They can deal with all the troublesome labor relationships and trade unions. And particularly if it's an authoritarian state, that's much better because then they'll keep wages low. And then we'll mm -hmm. just we'll just do the sunrise industry. They always had, I was saying this earlier on, in the 1980s, the Thatcher neoliberals they're all talking about we should abandon the sunset industries manufacturing basically and replace mm -hmm. it with the sunrise industries which were like new technologies but also finance of course and of um, course yeah finance has ultimately done nothing for the world economy <laughs> yeah but they could um, hoover they could hoover up the profits so you know, someone like a manufacturer in china like 80 cents out of every dollar was actually going to the west their take out of that one dollar of of value realized was actually very low and what's happened is that they slowly gone up the technological sophistication where now they are making the new technologies they are the people creating and they are the consumers of it as well and then and in a good keynesian sense the producers are the consumers you know if you want to create the circuit of capital in the introductory chapters of volume two of capital that's what it is they've got that you can realize the value yeah great effective demand and that's one of the reasons why living standards have to rise in china and they're not too it's interesting about recently in foxconn they had this huge basically a riot to force foxconn to fulfill this labor contracts they'd signed up all these new labor workers and it was interesting that how i was thinking in the west the police would have been really violent in suppressing the protests but how passive the chinese police were so they obviously were Though they don't like 
organized trade unions they're quite willing to tolerate mass prote protest because it's probably in their long-term interest to push wages up yeah well i mean although they're dealing with some other things as well so this has been a it's been a good conversation here but let's maybe for the final discussion topic here let's maybe bring it back this whole this whole thing that we've been talking about today and your written work here is about a vision of the future a vision of progress that yeah lodestar if you will that the necessity of humans wanting something to be pointing toward but there has been an emergence with bernie sanders and you could argue corbyn jeremy corbyn in the uk yeah. then there's some some pieces in other countries around the world as well but here's the thing though is that so a lot of that critique, it, a lot of these movements tend to be mostly around critique and not enough about substance and toward yeah, a I new vision of the future, an iteration of leftism, if you will, that people great, can point toward yeah. as something that, well, we don't like this neoliberal present. Well, what could we have instead? Well, I think the greatest achievement of Jeremy Corbyn during his leadership was the two election manifestos. So we came within 100,000 votes of winning in, in 2017. Unfortunately, in 2019, it turned into a bit of a disaster. And the Blairites came back into control of the Labour Party. But those two, those, I think, did give a sort of left social democratic alternative. I think that's why they were so determined to get rid of him. But I think, the, the, I think it, there is in there a sort of trying to take a lot of the ideas of social democratic new left experiments and update them for the 21st century. I mean, we wrote this digital democracy manifesto for Jeremy's uh, second leadership campaign. And some of it went into the manifesto, digital bill of rights and sort of trying to make co-ops, these sorts of things. I mean, there's sort of various ideas that were going around about trying to create a sort of, it's not overthrowing capitalism or creating cybernetic communism, but at least it's pushing society in that direction. And I think that was the worry. There was a thing that Thatcher said, there is no alternative. And she clearly closed down anything that looked like an alternative. And in a way, you can see that that's the why in the West, the ideal is America, its political system, where you have two political parties, which are both controlled by the rich. So you have blue and red, and they're essentially the same party. They have cultural war differences, but on the economy, they're no different. And on imperial policy they're no different as far as i can see and they might criticize each other when they're out of power but they'll just do the same thing when they're in power. and that in a way has been the problem in so-called democracy in the west i think for decades and so these emergence of the alternatives whether it's the dsa in america the whole corbyn project here france and Sumise, linker in Germany and so on is that they're trying to actually create something that says something different and says there's a different one but the warning is that when a radical party was elected in Greece Syriza it got crushed basically very quickly and not just from externally but internally it was very difficult for even people elected to power to actually break with the existing system because they're so tied in with it. And so I don't know if we got elected in 2017, how long we would have stayed in power, I don't know. I mean, because a large part of the Labour Party would have pre preferred the Tories to win. It's a bit like you've got people like Manchin, haven't you, in Congress who are essentially Republicans in all but name. Yeah, well, in, in the US, I, it, it's, it's a contest between reactionaries and conservatives. Exactly. <laughs> and the Democrats are the conservatives, basically. But the sad thing, I think, is the way that the DSA has got completely co-opted into the Biden. They've not opposed the war and they've gone along with breaking a railroad, which I think is really shocking.
be honest. I can see because of the political system, the electoral system, you have to work within the Democratic Party. But to actually go along to not oppose the defence budget, every year you should vote against the defence budget on principle. Not a penny, not a man, as they used to say before 1940. You never vote for the military because they, they, well, mm-hmm. nothing else will be used against you if you're not careful. So so that seems to be the real thing. And then also the real basic thing is you stand in solidarity with strikes, never cross a picking line. And so that that's the worry. Once people get into power, they start to become like the people they claim to oppose when they were elected. And that's been a problem for the left since the early 20th century. In the 19th century, we could keep our principles firm because we were excluded from power. But the 20th century is a story of what happens when socialists and communists come to power. You can say there's been immense achievements made across the world, but also they have become the system in many ways. And people eventually end up rebelling against the left. One of the theorists of Solidarnosc, and he said, my basic aim in life in Poland is to make the left left and the right right. Even now in 2022, it's very difficult to see that. Some of the people who are often arguing most for welfare and state intervention are actually considered to be on the right and often the far right, actually. And people who are supposed to be on the left turn out to be basically soft neoliberals. So this is the difficulty. We haven't rearranged it. So there's class politics. No, that's why they're so into lifestyle issues. Or even you could argue a lot of the green issues because they're not tackling the cause of the environmental crisis. They're just doing sort of superficial measures. And I think that's the problem. Well, certainly that's where carbon credits are and taxes. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Which can then all carbon credits, even worse, that can be traded. So, wow, we just made more money for Wall Street and mm-hmm. the city of London. So tackling these key issues. I mean, it comes back to what we were trying to say in the California. It's a class issue at the end of the day. These other issues aren't important, but unless you're talking about the class issue, the divide between the mass of the population who have to sell their labour for a living and the very small group of people who own all the wealth, you're not really talking serious politics, actually. Well, it's also, though, that understanding that these things are linked together. They're all linked together, like they're used as tools of, of, of people to preserve their wealth. Yeah. I mean, you certainly see that with like Elon Musk trying to attack transgender people as or if that I... has anything to do with his billions. Or, or, or vice versa, the Biden regime thinking that somehow the US military is progressive. If it has a transgender official on the top of it, or a woman running Raytheon, or a black man mm-hmm. in, who's running the Ministry of Defense. I mean, this is nothing to celebrate. The fact that they have a diversity in the ruling elite doesn't mean they're not the ruling elite anymore. It doesn't help the people that are from these groups. Well, Obama <laughs> the being, Barack Obama being the great example. They had eight years of a black president and African-Americans were worse off. They were both relatively and in absolute terms worse off compared to the rest of America. And he was from supposed before, to be the black president. In the 1970s, if you said we're going to have a black president, they would think like this was radical. It was like Hugh P. Newton in power or something. But no, no, yeah. no. It turned out that he was just a front Another neoliberal. Street, basically, in the military-industrial complex. That's what he was. He's yeah. done very well out of it. He has a big house in Martha's Vineyard and all the rest of it. Him and his family have done well. But for the average worker who happens to be African-American, he, was, he offered nothing. He offered a sort of moral boost, didn't he? Okay, there's someone like me as president. But yeah, he's but not really can't... like them. He's actually not like them. He's a member of the elite. He's a member of the capitalist class. And so if you're a worker, you have nothing in common with him. He's got much more in common with Dick Cheney 
than he has with your average inhabitant of Oakland or <laughs> South Central mm -hmm. LA. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I mean, so ultimately trying to get people to understand the sort of sense of shared fate and shared struggle that that's ultimately what has to be done well i think i right. think you have to you um, have to think that we've spent the cold war and now what we've been talking about what happened in the last 30 years one of the key things has been to stop that there's been a very deliberate policy to divide and rule the workers basically and mm -hmm. to create alternative visions of the future well all right so i want to actually end on a more positive note yeah. here tell us what a better vision of the future it's just like a few points here that you would say well i think there's two ways you have to think about the future i mean the first is a set of practical reasons the left have to put forward which i said these election manifestos are not the labor party produced which are a great collective effort lots of people their ideas were a way of creating a 21st century vision of a working social democracy maybe that's actually utopian now, the empire will never allow what it actually was willing to tolerate in previous decades. So there's that, which is like, let's improve things at a really basic level, a local level, make sure people have access to healthcare and education and housing and transport and all the benefits of these new technologies to make sure that they're properly distributed among the whole population. Because we all love these technologies. Here I am having an interview with you on video for free. This is extraordinary, isn't it, really? I mean, it's an amazing... Well, I'm paying people. for it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could do it on Zoom for long, you know, whatever, yeah. Well, very cheaply, they say very Point cheap. taken, though, point yeah, taken. Yeah, point taken. I mean, so, this is, so there's this huge potential in this technology, which is not being realised, basically, because the system doesn't want to realise it. They want to channel it in ways that profit them. It's a great argument this guy put out. He said you can only understand the history of the last hundred or so years as the prevention of communism. That's what all the elites around the world are trying to prevent capitalism mm -hmm. spontaneously evolving into communism, which is a nice sort of Hegelian conceit, I thought. So that's mm -hmm. the other side of it. You need to have some utopian vision of a post-capitalist society where people can are empowered to create the truly human civilization, where it's not money and wealth and war that dominate our lives, but looking after our children and our old people and actually living a civilized life, not living to work and all that sort of thing. So to create jobs that are meaningful, to create communities where people are really are connected with each other to try and solve these problems of alienation and so that that's the other side of it so that's that if you think about the advantages our ancestors had in the 19th century before they actually had to go through the experience of left-wing is that they had this vision they could actually have these visions of what communism were Karl Marx and Friedrich Engel carefully didn't define what they meant by it because they were being more practical about it but lots of other people said America was full of these utopian experiments wasn't it all over the place for a long period of time. So that's the bit of the new left that we also should recover, I think, is those ideas of how can we live in different ways, how can we interact with each other, and maybe not quite as stoned as they were, but maybe a bit more practical. But that's also mm -hmm. what we need to do, is to take those technologies and see whether we can connect together in a better way. Because there are other visions of the future. We can see them, these very authoritarian, top-down, corporate visions. And I'm not sure whether we can rely on the Communist Party of China to create full communism either. <laughs> yeah, that seems unlikely. <laughs>
All right. Well, now this has been a good conversation here. I appreciate your time here. So we've been uh, speaking with Richard Marbrook. He is the author of Imaginary Futures. It's a book that came out in 2007. It's worth checking out. And then if you are on Twitter as well, you can follow him at Richard Barbrook. That's B-A-R-B-R-O-O-K. So Richard Barbrook, great having you here today and I encourage everybody to check out your work. Thank you. All right. So that's our program for today. I appreciate everybody joining us. And just a reminder that we are part of the Flux.community network. And please do check us out at flux.community. And then you can also go to theoryofchange.show to go to the archives of the show there. And we have transcripts and audio and video of all the episodes. Um, But if you want to get the full transcripts of every episode, you get usually about half of each episode in text. But if you want to get the full transcripts, just go to patreon.com slash discoverflux. And we definitely are thankful and grateful to the people who do support us on there as well. Yeah, really appreciate that. Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself, so you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.